Now on Documentary on News Talk, in the second of a two-part documentary, Mary Brophy retraces the story of how two farmers and an ecologist with a shared love of wildlife attempted to reverse the devastating impacts of decades of intensive farming on biodiversity in The Farmers Who Went Wild. The Irish rural landscape is growing silent. Farmland birds have disappeared at an alarming rate. Insect and bee populations have plummeted. In 2021, two-thirds of all bird species on the island are now in serious trouble because they have neither habitats nor food. Nature is under attack and agricultural policy is the primary cause. You've got this drive for intensity because of just the, the pressure on prices and wildlife birds are uh, the collateral damage in that. But this is not the story you've grown used to hearing, only about how bad everything is, or who wants to argue about who's to blame. This is a story about trying to do something about it. You know, rewilding your farm is fine, but you, you still have to make an income from it. There aren't many people who, who are able to, to see uh, how, how you can knit the two. I think that's what we were bringing to the table. We began knocking our heads together and thinking how could we improve the pretty drastic situation on Irish farmland. That was the whole annoying thing about it, you know, that, that it needed to be at a landscape scale. Uh, that was always the problem. My name is Mary Brophy, and you're listening to the second part of The Farmers Who Went Wild, a documentary about the supposedly unlikely friendship between two farmers and an ecologist, and how their shared love of wildlife saw them attempt to reverse the devastating impacts of five decades of intensive farming in one Cork River Valley. We were just left deflated, there was just no funding and that was it. And, and, and I remember driving home and could not figure out where we were going with this. It was, it was really, that was the end of it, you know, because there was, there was, there was no other, other avenue open to us really. At this point, dairy farmer Donald Sheehan, beef and tillage farmer Paul Moore and ecologist Tony Nagel were at a standstill. They had failed to secure the money for the agri-environment scheme they'd spent years thinking and talking about. Without funding, they knew any attempt to implement a project encouraging intensive farmers to accommodate biodiversity on their farms was futile. If we needed to get this off the ground, we really needed a, a, a big name behind us to give, give it a bit of traction. And and uh, so, uh, we, you know, we had, we had asked um, several companies and... Uh, you know, they were slow coming on board because, you know, who, who the hell do you think you are? So Donald decided to bring potential backers all together onto his farm so that they could physically see what he, Paul and Tony were trying to do. It, it was a desperation meeting and and what we said was we, we need to bring the, the, the people that are going to, you know, make this happen. We need to, to meet them. And so we had a, we had a, a farm walk here on, on the farm, and, and you know that we had we had people from Tagusk and people from Glanbia, but it was a very you know looking back on it now it was I mean where were you coming from lads now you know two farmers and ecologists and talking about the environment of all the things talking about and it, but it still it started something in motion. I only found out afterwards Donald had gone on a study trip to the Netherlands and they had encountered a group there that were doing a, a collective farming action for biodiversity, for farmland wildlife, kind of for wetland birds. John Finn is a Chagask research scientist who specialises in farmland ecology and he was there that day to hear what Donald had to say. 
And I think what struck him at that point was the collective approach, that when you get groups of farmers working together f toward a common purpose, that they were so more effective at it than just this person in isolation doing their bit and another person in isolation doing their bit. And that bit on one farm could be very effective. But unless, uh, you know... The, the local groups of farmers were all going in the same direction. They were never going to achieve as much impact. And that was his idea at the time, that they wanted a group effort moving in a particular direction to improve uh, farmland wildlife in the Bride Valley. And I, I, you know, I thought it was a great idea, and I told him that. And, uh, and, and yeah, I thought no more of it at that point. A few weeks later, an email circular caught John's attention. A funding round had been announced for European Innovation Partnerships, or EIPs. This is a scheme that partners farmers with scientists to road test new farming methods that are both environmentally friendly and economically viable. John thought of the three in Cork. Yeah, it kind of came out of the blue. Um, I can't remember, I might have tipped them off saying, look, this might suit your plans. That, you know, I just kind of did a skip pass of the email and the announcement that there was a funding proposal, fired it off to them and thought, well, sure, you know, they'll take it from there and good luck to them. And uh, kind of made a, an off-the-cuff remark, sure. And, you know, if you want some feedback at some point, feel free to get in touch. <laughs> um, I thought that would be the end of my engagement with them. EIP is European Innovation Partnership Funding. And we actually thought we had missed the boat because... Um, the Hen Harrier project and the Freshwater Pearl Mussel project are two hugely successful projects. Um, they had been funded and, and got substantial funding and then there didn't seem to be anything left. Uh, and again, you know, that, that was, again, hugely deflating for us because that was ho where we were hoping to get money from. Um, but then uh, the government came back and they, they said that they'd, they'd put uh, funding towards these EIP projects. This was a lifeline. And as ecologist Tony Nagel recognised, it wasn't piecemeal. It was a chance to entirely fund their idea and implement the changes on other intensive farms that Donal and Paul had already made. And we just suddenly saw this as possible because a European pro project like that will fund the whole project without us having to match anything. It was a question of then, how much did we need? You know, and we, we, So we had to go back to the drawing board and work out how many farms can we include or involve in the project, whereby we would have sufficient funding to, to make a difference on each of the farms. The three set about fine-tuning what the project might look like and where they would roll out their idea. In fairness, the Donald was the driver kind of behind this, so it made sense to do it in his area. That's Paul Moore. He'd been already talking to people in, in that area and <laughs> we spent an evening thinking up what would you call the project and we said Bride, Bride Valley, what can you make of, uh, of, of Bride? And it was Tony, I think, came up with biodiversity regeneration in a daring environment and it, it just that kind of clicked us. I know oh, that's brilliant, actually. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we need. And we came up with the idea of you know, we should set aside, have, have, have these guys working towards a certain percentage of the farm and we said what percentage of the farm is going to be, as we call it, a, a biodiversity managed area, BMA. And it, 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 it started at five. Now in, in the current cap, tillage farmers have to have 5% anyway. So we said, well, five is maybe too low. So we got to seven and a half and eventually it ended up at 10%. So 10% of the farm should be biodiversity managed, an area managed for biodiversity, basically. 
Uh, unfortunately, the application was uh, 50,000 words. So that was, uh, I put my hand up and it's, I'm not, it's not something I'm good at, is putting an application together. None of the team had ever attempted anything on this scale before. With the funding deadline looming, they needed help and fast. You know, if you don't have the expertise, you bring in someone with the expertise and you bring in the people that will make the project a success and, and realising that, that, you know, it was, got, it was getting bigger now and it was, get, it was needing the kind, that kind of expertise. Donald knew exactly where to go. So I was a bit surprised when um, they said, well, maybe we'll take you up on your offer of, of, of giving us a hand. And at the time I'd been very busy on a whole pile of research projects and feeling that, Despite all of this research, how, how much impact are we making? I was publishing loads of articles, scholarly academic articles with very fancy statistical analysis and uh, well-justified conclusions and all the rest of it in journals where they were gathering dust on library shelves. And along came Donald with this idea of implementing the ideas that we had all of these dusty articles about and implement them on farms. And I think that's what grabbed me. So we met up with them and it was clear they had a great idea. And it was clear that they had great vision about what they wanted to do. And it was clear that, that Donal also was a bit of a local champion and had been championing this idea amongst the local farmers and had, had, had this kind of nucleus of, of a group that would be responsive to what he was talking about if the right opportunity came along. Here was an opportunity to, to put into practice on real farms where real farmers would visit, where we would demonstrate to other real farmers and just the impact of that and the chance to be, I suppose, at the edge of, of helping to create awareness that Donald had seen that the farming community would have to do. To be part of that was, was what convinced us to get involved. John Finn and his colleague Dara Ohulakon came on board. At last, Donal had the significant backer he needed for the Bride Project. The involvement of Chagusk was a weighty endorsement, not just of the concept, but of the team behind it. That's when uh, we went back to the, to the people uh, that we wanted to collaborate with. So it was all the, the stakeholders. So if, if you wanted this to succeed, who did you want on board with you? You needed the milk side of the business, you needed the meat side of the business, the tillage side of the business. Also, you needed um, an environmental group because it needed to be kind of rubber stamped, not just by farmers, it, it needed to be rubber stamped, that was important, but by, uh, you know, an environmental organisation. And then Cork County Council came on board because uh, they were responsible for water quality and you needed to be able to collaborate with them. So. Uh, once John Finn and Tagus came on board, uh, suddenly, uh, yeah, people started saying, yeah, OK, we, we, we'll support that. Uh, what wasn't clear at that point was how engaged we would end up in, 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 in that proposal and that project, because very soon afterwards, when, uh, when we started looking at the, the proposal and the writing, I remember we would say, OK, we're going to start drafting this. And Dara and I, who are you know, we're professional research scientists and we're used to writing proposals, we were given a deadline of writing two or 3,000 words on a particular thing that would go into the proposal and we had 10 days to do it and we did it. And the lads had, had their deadline with another three or 4,000 words and it wasn't done. And, you know, it was very clear that 
that from a very early stage that, and it's not surprising that the kinds of things that are needed in a research proposal and, uh, sorry, it wasn't a research proposal, but the EIP process is, is equivalent to a research proposal. You know, they require a particular set of skills that, that, uh, that the lads didn't necessarily have. And that's, that's no surprise. If Donald came to me and said, I want you to manage my, my dairy farm, the cows would have mastitis in a week and probably be dead in a month, you know. Um, so it was that team effort that worked really well. Like we ended up with a 117-page application. So it, it wasn't a trivial exercise. It, it, it was kind of embarrassing because I felt a bit inadequate uh, that I wasn't contributing what I should be contributing. But we all did chapters of it, um, and and it was a substantial application. It's not something you you know if you're we were looking for for 1.3 million, so you're not going to get 1.3 million based on something you write in the back of a matchbox. And uh, we all did our, our, our chapters, but it, it was it was John and and Dara really that took it by the scruff of the neck because you know that's bread and butter to them. Uh, they, do it with their eyes closed. Do you think that process was a bit of a shock to the system, to the lads? Oh, I know it was. <laughs> I mean, the, the deadlines were reasonably tight or, or for some reason, maybe we'd, we'd spend so long talking about it and uh, I think the realisation that without somebody taking this by the scruff of the neck, it might not get over the line happened quite close to the deadline. So um, uh, Dara took control of the budget and I took control of the writing at that point and we just hammered it home in a, in, in a few weeks with constant feedback with the lads. The application went in. After years of talking and planning, the hopes of Donal, Paul and Tony now rested in the hands of faceless bureaucrats in an office somewhere. All they could do was wait. And months went by, with no news. As they waited, they knew that Bride's mission to restore biodiversity and change mindsets in intensive farming areas was growing more urgent. As the severity and scale of the climate and biodiversity crisis becomes more and more apparent. Uh, The Irish government declared a biodiversity and climate crisis in 2019, and there was a reason for that. So it's quite clear that there are there are challenges there to be met and those challenges aren't getting harder. I think it's just that there, as time goes on, there is mounting pressure on us to meet those, those targets. Many um, researchers and environmental NGOs would say is 10% really is that, is that threshold of the farmland area in a landscape that should be a habitat of some sort if we're to avoid uh, continuing biodiversity declines and extinctions. So, um, we, you know, a lot of Irish farmland is actually quite close to that 10% or exceeds it. I think it's when we start looking at the more intensive farms that there is more of a distance to that target. I think that's where, that's where the real challenge will be is, is how can policy support farmers? Because it's, it's never usually farmers. I mean, when we meet far, that, that, that are driving problems, it's actually farmers and their rational response to policies that squeeze them down particular directions that result in a bad outcome for nature. Since its first introduction in 1962, the Common Agricultural Policy had achieved its core target of ensuring secure food supplies by bringing more land into production and promoting intensification through its schemes and payments. Before long, though, it had to reform to respond to the high cost of its own success. By the late 70s, subsidies and price guarantees had caused a surge in production. Remember those butter mountains and milk lakes? So production quotas were introduced. In the 90s, price guarantees were scrapped 
and replaced with direct payments, or the checks in the post, to protect farm incomes. But payment structures were still giving farmers a strong incentive to increase livestock numbers, and therefore production. So in 2003, Europe's agricultural ministers removed headage payments, or payment per animal, and replaced them with a single farm payment. Even though there were environmental strings attached to these, land eligibility rules meant that payments were deducted from farmers for non-productive land, including ponds, wetlands or marsh. So an absurd system evolved that saw environmental schemes introduced to encourage habitat creation on farmland, but they operated in isolation and in contradiction with a basic payment system that incentivized farmers to take out these habitats or lose income. And most recently, 2015 saw milk quotas abolished in response to increased global demand for dairy. In just five years, the Irish national herd has increased to over 1.5 million dairy cows. And Cork, home to the largest percentage, increased its herd to 388,831. That's over 48,000 more dairy cows than in 2015. These are just the headlines of decades of complex policy, payments and schemes. But it's clear that these instruments all had consequences for biodiversity, inadvertently or otherwise. As the common agricultural policy shapes how farmers produce food, so it now shapes what happens to birds and wildlife across Europe's farming landscapes. The European barometers of, of, of understanding of biodiversity indicate that they're... That the average European uh, citizen is more, becoming more and more interested, more and more engaged, more and more concerned. Um, and I guess the trick is, at what point will that, will that be reflected in European policy? Um, and at what point will that level of ambition be realised? We currently have quite ambitious targets in the European Farm to Fork strategy and the European Biodiversity strategy, which are talking about landscape, high diversity landscape features comprising 10% of the landscape. They're talking about increases in protected areas and so on. So there's really, there's really important and ambitious, you'd have to say, strategies being set up by the Commission. Now the debate is how do we translate those strategies into policies and how do we translate those policies into payments that incentivize farmers to make space for nature. And if those policies at a European level uh, encourage farmers and even remove disincentives, which is the case at the moment, that could have an enormous impact. The next round of CAP is currently being negotiated between the European Parliament, the Council and Commission. The policy has potential to do something about biodiversity loss on a European landscape scale, and there are hopes that the proposed eco-schemes will make a difference. But the difficulty with top-down correction at this scale is that it takes time and innovative proposals often get mired or diluted in negotiation. Back in 2017, Bride, on the other hand, was a true bottom-up and local solution that could make on-the-ground changes immediately. Donald had convinced me that this was, this was something that would have such a big impact in changing people's minds and creating awareness. And I knew it myself. You know, that's why we got involved. You know, Donald is such a, his, his enthusiasm is so infectious and I knew he was right. You know, what he'd been saying about this is how we start creating awareness. This is about how we start changing attitudes and, it, uh, and it, that it needs to be done. I mean, I didn't need to be convinced too hard. I knew he was right. 
It had the potential to be a, such a fierce, important project. So we knew we were up against it. Ecologist Tony Nagel again. This was never going to be you know, a guaranteed success story in terms of winning the application. But we did know that we were kind of unique and we were hopeful on that front. And a lot of the other projects are aimed at maybe, say, disadvantaged areas or they're very specific to a particular type of agriculture. Whereas nothing, none of them really were looking at trying to improve, th- improve this biodiversity situation on intensively farmed farmland. Um, so I think we stood out on that basis alone. We were in the in, in the the running for it. We knew that Donald Sheehan. I remember uh, very well. It was um, it was about three days before Christmas. Uh, I think it was on a Friday. And it was so, uh, <laughs> we were waiting and waiting, um, and it, it came by email. And it was the worst, it was the coldest. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it, was, it was just, you have been successful. And I was inside in the office on my own, there was no one in the house. And it was a huge achievement, but you couldn't celebrate with anyone. You know, you'd, you'd love to, you know, be there with, with the six people that, were, that had got it across the line, but people had gone away home on holidays and John was in Wexford and all the lads were elsewhere. But uh, that's just the way it was. But, but nevertheless, it was, you know, coming from where we, where, we, where, where we had been coming from. This was absolutely, it was, it was a dream. It was really a dream come true because it, it, it's a dream project. I mean, it was the government saying to us, you know, there is an issue, we acknowledge there's an issue. Um, you know, here's a million euro, go away and sort out the problem of farmland biodiversity loss, and it's all yours, take it away. When Donald sent through the letter with the, uh, with the result on it and that we'd, been, we'd gotten the stage two funding and we're going to get most, or the vast majority of the funding, I was absolutely thrilled. And uh, I remember saying to my wife, you know, this is brilliant. This is the best Christmas present I've had in a long time. I don't know if she best pleased. But uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was just a week or two before Christmas, if I remember right. Myself and Paul and Donald met up afterwards and we said we'd celebrate. <laughs> just to, you know, because it was quite intensive, the, the whole application process. And it had been going on you know, from our initial discussions, probably about four, five or six years prior to this big date when we finally got the go-ahead. So, yeah, it was a very memorable time, absolutely. But it was a, it was a kind of a cat blanche. They, they, they put no restrictions in our place. In place. Uh, it, it was really, you design it, uh, you come up with, with a plan, uh, and, and it, was, it was brilliant. It, it was really, a, a, yeah, a dream project. You're listening to The Farmers Who Went Wild on Documentary on News Talk. Very often in these things, you work so hard to get the proposal and then the letter comes through and you're absolutely delighted. And then there's a moment when you kind of go, oh shit, now we have to do the work. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah. And then the hard work started. Yeah, after all that effort, then the hard work started. <laughs> it was, you know, I suppose all of a sudden then we suddenly had to decide, gosh, this is real, we have to do something with it now and um, get our act together. None of us had ever done anything like this before. Now the fun starts <laughs> and you, you realise that, oh my God, I don't believe this. We, 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 you know, you've been trying to give it back. Yes, getting the money was a major coup, but the success of the scheme was dependent on convincing farmers to take part. Yes, Donald was a local, 
and in ways he'd been preparing the ground for years. But when it came to it, would that be enough to get Bride Valley farmers to sign up? The team began to put the word out. But, but you know, straight away, we, we, we even I remember over, over Christmas, you know, we were starting to have meetings and seeing where we'd go and how, how to bring people on board, how to bring farmers on board. Obviously, it's going to be tough to implement it and we were a bit nervous when we were going to get farmers. Paul Moore. I mean, it was the headlines in the local papers up, up, up around the Bride Valley, up the villages up there, kind of thing, new agri-environment scheme. We had John Finn and a few other people there in the background saying, you know, this is the way, this is the way these things work. You start off slowly and you build and you build and you build. You'll get about 15 the first year, then it'll build to 25. And, and we made full use of, of the fact that there was a million euros coming into this small project. That, that was a huge part of it because we, we, we really wanted to promote it so that farmers would buy into it. It was important that this wasn't seen to be a Mickey Mouse project, that it was, you know, a serious project and that, you know, it was a million euros just for the Bride Valley farmers. We really wanted to hone in on that, that this was one million euros coming into the Bride Valley uh, to improve biodiversity. In April 2018, Donald, Paul and Tony called a community meeting to announce the details of the scheme. The, we had 20 seats out uh, because we, we were hoping to get 20 farmers the, the first year. We had 110 people at that first meeting, which was an absolutely, you know, it was a great fill for us. It was, it was a great pat in the back, saying because it gives us the signal that these, these farmers are really up for it. We did a slide, a PowerPoint presentation uh, on that opening night, and the first slide was in black and white, uh, this is not a gravy train. And uh, everyone started laughing, and I said, well, I said, nobody's after leaving, so obviously you're not in it for the money. So well, we were making a laugh at that, and, uh, um, because, it, you know, it's important to reward farmers and not to take them for granted. But this was never going to be about lining farmers' pockets because we just didn't have the budget. And we wanted to really showcase that farmers were willing to make the changes and that the changes would improve biodiversity. Most of them deep down do have a love of nature. The connection, I think, has certainly been uh, weakened over the last 40 or 50 years because, you know, the emphasis has been on how, how do you improve this farmland for agriculture and nature has been forgotten about by and large or it's very much a side issue once they were reassured that they weren't going to lose money uh, okay they, they, they would lose little pockets of land here and there but the, but the payment that they would receive for the measure generally compensates for that little patch of land that has been given over to nature if you like within a week we had 65 expressions of interest and we closed it down completely of those 65 expressions of interest, 42 farmers wanted to sign up. Donald and Paul had had to learn what worked to reverse biodiversity loss on their farms, on their own for the most part, and through trial and error. But now, their solutions could be shared with farmers across the valley. The huge level of interest presented Donald and the team with a new problem. 42 farms far exceeded what they had budgeted for. We had done a budget and we had kind of said, we'll allocate uh, 5,000 euros per farmer per year. That, that was a kind of a figure we had in our head that they, they'd need to get that. Like. And w when it was put to them that um, the 5,000 euros per year, it would mean that we'd have to select some farmers not to go forward 
we're going to have to bring it down to 27 if everybody if we want to give everyone the 5,000 worth of, of improvements etc because with 42 that was only going to be 3,000 so they were taking a cut like all of the farmers that came on board um, came on because they were keen on this I would really say that and, and the money wasn't the driving factor um, and again I, I wouldn't like to, be, to, to take advantage of them because of that but when we had a, we had a meeting with all the farmers and there was a unanimous decision taken that that nobody should be asked to leave and I was again it was it was fantastic because it meant that their head was in the right place they they were keen on getting the job done it wasn't about maximizing money from it it, it was brilliant when when you know everyone of them said no no one should be asked to, to leave if they didn't want to leave so bride was up and running Each participating farmer agreed to a 10% allocation of their farmland to be managed for nature within five years. This sounds like a significant loss to an intensive operation. Consider closing down 10% of a factory floor to production. But in fact, most farms already had this in unproductive space. This is where we're at. The bride farmers, the the average is 13%. So 13% of their farms is in Woodland, ponds, hedgerows, field margins, wetlands. So it's, it's, it's there already, but it's not managed properly. Most farms have these spaces like hedgerows, but they're rarely managed in a way that's sympathetic to wildlife. Hedges, for example, are cut so low or so often that they don't blossom and so can't provide food or nesting sites for birds or shelter for animals. The Bride Project creates a bespoke management plan tailored for each farm in the scheme detailing how unfarmed spaces could be enhanced for wildlife or where missing habitats could be introduced. So we, we would list first and foremost what habitats, existing habitats were there. All of this would have been noted. And then we would look at what, what's missing on this farm. Invariably ponds, because I think of the farms that were surveyed, only three or four of them still had ponds. Uh, they needed maintenance, but at least they had them. So, and then every farm has hedgerows, of course, but the Bride Project's idea of a hedgerow and some farmers' idea of a hedgerow are, can be quite different. One of the big measures is to let the hedges grow. The top of the hedge is allowed to continue to grow, but we do encourage uh, maintenance on the sides of the hedge, if you like. The bit about the Bride Project that really roped myself and Dara in and, and got our interest going in a way that few other projects had was its emphasis on results-based payments, that farmers would be paid on the basis of what they delivered for biodiversity in terms of change on the ground and not just for actions that may or may not be effective. It's not some other ecologist or some other project person in Bride looking at the habitats and figuring out are they in good quality or not. Uh, It's the farmers who are engaging in it. It's the farmers who are delivering it. It's the farmers who are, as the project develops, understanding, well, if I manage it this way, I'll get a lower payment. And if I change or carry on managing it in this other way, I'll get a higher payment. And that is exactly what we want. So we're, we're trialling a results-based payment in an intensive agricultural environment. And I think that's quite innovative. And that's where the appeal is. This is, this is why this has impact. Yeah, so a key part of, of the Bride Project for us was providing the evidence. I mean, knowing, knowing that so many people were going to be looking over its shoulder, we wanted to make very sure that they had something worth looking at and uh, not just claims and not just assurances but actual evidence that the actions were effective and ultimately good value for money. 
it will be a lot of different things. We, we have um, surveyed 30 of the farms for, for birds, bats, pollinators and, and, and vegetation, a botanical survey. That was all done in 2018. So we'll be doing that again in 2023. So we will have evidence of, of whether it's, it's a success or not th that way. There's 37 out of the 42 farms now have put in ponds. So that's, no, no matter what, there, there'll be an improvement in biodiversity there because there, there'll be dragonflies and frogs there where there won't have been before in 37 areas. And you could nearly kind of guarantee that. When you start ref refraining from cutting hedges, songbirds will come back. That will inevitably happen. When you stop spraying field margins, pollinators will come back. Inevitably that will happen, uh, almost certainly. When you start planting trees and, and letting your hedgerows grow, bats will, will, will increase. That will, I'd say, inevitably happen. But again, it'll, it'll all come down to the real problem species are the ground nesters. And this involves more than just changes at the edges. Farmland birds, their diet, their nesting sites, evolved alongside traditional farming practices and landscapes over generations. But we have silage fields now rather than hay meadows, much bigger machines and a lot more cattle. Bringing back target species to the Bride Valley will require an intentional effort to farm for nature in the fields too. Uh, we have a list of target species. One of them is a skylark. It's the bird that's on, on our logo. And the, the skylark is a grow nesting bird. So two of our farmers have, have skylark. They actually didn't know they had skylark. And this is one of the species that's really in decline. And we went out on a farm walk one day and I, I saw this skylark landing 20 metres from where we were looking at, 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 the, at the grass and the cows and uh, nobody realised it um, and, and farmers just didn't know it because that connection is gone and, and gone for a number of years so part of what we do is actually explaining to them that listen, that's a skylark and watch where it lands and those two farmers uh, took that on board and they actually they didn't find the nest but they, they know where the nest is and they fenced that off when the cows came in and they take the fence away and they graze it the next time because skylarks turn over very quick. You know, within three weeks, they're, they're gone from, from unfledged to fledged. And so they're, they're really tuned in now um, to where the skylark are and they're watching out from every year. And they've actually um, got uh, what we call a target species payment now. They get 100 euros purely for looking after those two pairs of, of skylarks. They get 100 euros each. And it's not a huge payment, but it's an acknowledgement that this is important. And, and, and again, it's, it's the, you know, I, I'd love to give them 500 euros, but this is just acknowledging that this species is in trouble and what you're doing is uh, above and beyond the call of duty and we're rewarding you for it. But 100 euros is nothing. It's nothing. So, like, are they, did you see a shift there? I mean, that's another thing that somebody has to watch for. It, it, it is, but, but I'll tell you, when, when you see the pride in those two farmers, that they've actually secured one of our target species, you know, and, and again, we're, we're not able to pay for it. Um, that's just the way it is. We do need to be mindful that if you don't have grazing animals, the, the, the land will go, will, will, will go wild, as it were. And then you, you will have a reduction in biodiversity. Everything then will become scrub and then it'll eventually become woodland. So you won't have any wetlands and you won't have any um, you know, species-rich grassland. And the species have evolved side by side with grazing animals. Curlews, lapwing, skylark, they won't do without grazing animals. They need the low structure and the high structure, the, 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 the structure variation in the sward because of grazing animals. So it's just a matter of getting a, a better balance.
what happened to us is we just we just increased the cows and, and the stock too much. There was never a problem with, with, with drinking milk or eating meat. It was the problem was that we, we put too many uh, animals per, per, per hectare. And that's the tension. How is this balance redressed? Agriculture in Ireland and Europe is at a critical juncture. Along with addressing climate change and emissions, there's a general acceptance that we have to address the devastating biodiversity loss caused by the way we intensively farm and manage the land. In a second year of the COVID pandemic, the need to restore a balance between human activity and nature has never been more evident. Yet there isn't political or public consensus about how that should be done, how quickly, and how or if farmers should be incentivised to play a substantial role. And we're running down the clock. In 2021, does the biodiversity and climate crisis call for a paradigm shift as to what farming is for? It's a difficult um, mindset to shift because for years and years you're farming to produce food. And unfortunately, when environmental payments came in first, they were for the alternative farmer. They were, and that tag is still there today. It's a, and it's a huge problem because the, the, the intensive farmers always saw it as, well, it's not really for us, you know, the environment. And, and that has to change. That, that, we are where we are because of that. We, we're, we're saying now that, you know, we produce quality food and we, we have all the credentials behind, but we haven't. So, so that, that's why it has to change. It's, it's, it's a really interesting space right now, is that tension between, between consumers, policy and the marketplace. Um, and there, sometimes you get, the, you get the feeling that the market could actually start outpacing the policy. Uh, because policy at European level takes so, so long to change. I get the feeling sometimes that the, the agri-food companies could push this faster than policy might. I think the best example is when the two cooperate. And we've seen examples abroad where you could have the public payments, the, the, the payments from the common agricultural policy that are targeted towards space for nature, uh, and it, they achieve a certain level of ambition and a certain threshold and that those could be topped up by agri-food companies as they are I know, in Switzerland, for example, and several other places. And that's the kind of a, an innovative public-private partnership that could be really effective and mutually enforce each other. I'm really optimistic. I, I can see a huge shift in, in the public. I think uh, retailers realise that this is what the public is, uh, are looking for. You know, it's going to take a while. You know, we, we've, the damage has been done for 50 years. We're not going to change it overnight. But you can see, you know, some people don't like change and, you know, I suppose no, nobody likes change. And, and, you know, it was fine for the last 20 years. Why can't you keep going with it? But that's, that's farming. We're always, farming is always changing. I think we need to be very careful of greenwashing. Uh, I think when it comes to wildlife issues and sustainability in general, it, your, your reputation is very, very hard won and it can be lost very, very quickly. And we need to be very, very careful about that. And that's why I'm so excited about the Bride Project. I think with wildlife and that issue, there is an existing problem, but we have a solution. And I think that's why I get so excited about and, and see the impact of the Bride Project. This is not an intractable problem that we just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, nothing can be done. This is a problem we can solve. Is something like the Bride or any of these things, are they ever going to get enough traction to become mainstream or they always be marginal? Well, that, that, that'll come down to policy. You know, if, if I've, I'm fully convinced that the Bride can be applied um, in, in the next cap reform. Why can you not have 10% of every farm 
set aside for delivering ecosystem services, that terrible phrase, ecosystem services. You know, that 10% would include wetlands to prevent flooding, to improve biodiversity, to improve water quality, fencing off your, your, your drains and your streams to prevent livestock access, getting into it. There is a value in that for, for the public. If we want to improve biodiversity, if we want to lower our carbon footprint, if we want to improve our water quality, it's farmers that are going to do it. It's rivers and streams that are running through f- farmland. It's woodlands and hedgerows and, and wetlands that are there to improve biodiversity. It's wetlands and farms that, that prevent flooding. And that has to be paid for, and the CAP should be paying for that. So success is, is the local farmers participating, uh, implementing the actions, and not just ticking the box and implementing them because they have to um, but implementing them because they realise they're part of something that's making a difference and uh, and I was down at a, a demonstration event there a few weeks ago and that is the sense I get from them they know that they're part of something and I was really making a strong point to them that what they do is so important and that the whole country is actually looking over their shoulder and and to give them a sense of how important what they're doing is. Because I do believe that. I, I think that maybe not right now, but certainly as the project goes towards the end stage, the whole country will be looking over the shoulder of the Bride Project. It's quite exceptional. There are many, many farmers around Ireland doing absolutely wonderful things for biodiversity. But this is a collective action, and it's one of the few in an intensive farming setting that is has a group of farmers and a cohort all working towards a common purpose in this way. And I think more of that is, is probably needed to solve the biodiversity crisis that we're in. The industry will be looking for ways to implement these kinds of things in the future. And that's why the country will be looking over the shoulder of the Bright Project as it gets to the end stage. Is there a responsibility on Bright to succeed? Do you feel that? There is. I, I, I do feel it because... Um, I think our our status as as a you know a producer of quality food as a country as Ireland Inc. That, that's what you're trying to you know I I'm in this for the long haul I'm a dairy farmer and I would feel that the business is under pressure unless this succeeds because you you're competing against you know you go to the sh- the shelves and you you can get soya milk you can get coconut milk you can get you know there's, there's rice milk you, you get several eight different types of milk and and you have to compete with that and that is where we should be going as Irish agriculture not just producing food but we're also looking after the environment that is where we we all need to go as as Irish farmers and you, we need to be able to tell that story. At the moment, we haven't got that story. We have the potential to, to tell that story, but it needs to be verified because for too long, we have come out with slogans that, you know, it's guaranteed this and it's guaranteed that. This is verifiable. An awful lot of the European budget will go to farmers. So if people start looking at farm, farming in Europe and looking at the, the, the ski slope, graphs of farmland birds or farmland biodiversity in general or water quality, they're all going down and people might start saying, well hang on here, why are we paying all this money over if we're not getting any benefit out of it? So I would argue that, you know, if, you, if people don't want the food and as, a, as a, a grain farmer with the price of grain I'd be saying there's no shortage of food in Europe at the moment because I'd be getting more than 157 euro as a base price per tonne of grain if there was a shortage of food so the only other thing I have to offer 
in terms of product would be biodiversity or environmental benefits. So to, 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 to guarantee or to safeguard with that cap payment, that income support to farmers, you're going to have to start looking out beyond food. We need to bring farming into the next century um, and, and it's true environmental payments and, and rewarding farmers. It has to be rewarding farmers for results. It's a penalty-based system at the moment. And that's why we have to put a value on that, that, that other 10 or 15%. And when there's a value on that, then you say, well, there's a value on now that. Now I can make a choice. I can make a choice. At the moment, the incentive is there to take out the habitats, drain the wetlands, increase the food production. There is no incentive there. And as it stands, that's going to be the case for the next seven years as well? It does look like it, yeah. But I, I think the, the other alternative is that the public uh, they haven't a choice at the moment, but if you can get a market for this kind of a product, then it's the public that will decide and the public will trump policy. They can, they can say, well, I'm going to buy this and the reason I'm buying it is because I know that those farmers are looking after the environment and it's a better product than that product. And it doesn't have to be a more expensive product, it's just that the margin has to go back to the farmer and not taken by the processor and the retailer. And that will change, that will change uh, biodiversity improvement very quickly. It'll change climate change and it will trump the policy that's there. And change the conversation. Absolutely, yeah. That's, we will have a story to tell then when that happens. The Farmers Who Went Wild is presented by Mary Brophy and is written and produced by Neil Boyle. It is an IWR media production for News Talk, funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.